Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Monday, January the 11th. Coming up, new Ontario modeling to be revealed and further measures that we could or should take. Plus, the latest on the Trump presidency following that U.S. Capitol riot and what could possibly trigger a 2021 election here in Canada. All of that coming up next here in the podcast. As you no doubt have heard, we have uh, sources in reporting that say that new modeling that the province will reveal tomorrow says that we're headed towards 6,000 daily cases here in Ontario of COVID by the end of the month, and ICUs will be at capacity by early February. Joining us now for more on this is Dr. Samantha Hill. She is the president of the Ontario Medical Association, and she joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. Hill, nice to have you back with us. Thanks for having me on the air again. All right, 6,000 daily cases by the end of the month. My first question is, is there anything that we can do to change that, or is it inevitable? Because it it certainly feels that way right now. It's absolutely not inevitable, and the fact that we all feel that it might be inevitable is part of the problem. So the modeling is based on people continuing their current behaviors and continuing the current rate of spread. If we all do the things that we know we're supposed to be doing, the things that we've been talking about from the very beginning, we will see that number clamp down. And so I'm talking about, of course, the things like social distancing, wearing your mask, religious hand-washing and obsessive sanitizing and all of those things. But we also really need to do better at testing, tracing, and isolating. And we've stressed the need for that since the very beginning of this. We're currently seeing the outcomes of years of undercutting public health. And while we had time and we advocated for a more nimble process earlier on in order to prevent some of that, that wasn't done. And we're seeing the consequences now. So to change that outcome, to change that 6,000 to a number that is more feasible, that is more manageable, we really need to act on the things that we know work. There's no magic. And one of those things that hasn't happened yet is paid sick leave. Another thing is support for essential workers. Are both those things, is that what you're looking for from the Ford government when they make their announcement tomorrow? We hear they're not only going to unveil the modeling that we've just detailed, but also a plan uh, moving forward. There's a lot of talk about stricter uh, measures, but I mean, that is something that uh, we hear time and time again is the transmission in the workplace and that people are going to work uh, sick or potentially sick because they can't afford not to be there. Do we need an extension in sick leave? Right. So we are seeing transmission from people who are not following the rules or from people who cannot follow the rules. It's just that simple, right? It's, it's the, the outcomes we're seeing now, the virus transmits by people. It doesn't transmit by magic. And so part of the solution is absolutely paid sick leave. We need to give people an option. They have to be able to stay home and continue to support their families. Part of the option is for increased supports. I'm delighted for the child care for essential workers, but there's so many groups that are left out of this framework. I recently heard about um, a shelter, basically, that was in an outbreak that had been brought to them by people who were working at long-term cares, and they had brought the outbreak from the long-term care to the shelter. And it is repugnant to me that some of our frontline healthcare workers aren't earning enough money to be able to afford a place for them to live safely. And so we are not doing justice to those people that we need to be helping. And we really need to start doing better at that. And that includes, you know, the mental health crisis that's going on. It includes all of the 
the communities where we're seeing it in much higher numbers. We need to start doing things that make sense within the community. Toronto is not the same as, I don't know, White Falls or, you know, pick your community. We have different communities. There's regional variability, and there needs to be an ability to adapt to the regional needs. And that's what we've been advocating for from the very beginning. Do we need further shutdown of industry? And I know that's a tough one because the economy is hurting and so many people are uh, hurting uh, when it comes to uh, jobs, not uh, being able to go to work uh, right now because it's been shut down. The restaurant, the retail industry, of course, chief amongst those. But I'm thinking about the construction industry. I know there was a letter sent to the premier over the uh, weekend basically saying, please don't shut us down because we're really only two or three percent of the uh, COVID uh, cases. But Having said that, we hear that about schools as well, and all of these 2 and 3%, doctor, uh, they add up over time. They absolutely do. But here's the bigger question is, if we shut down, if we do a really strict shutdown, and we actually you know, barricade people inside their houses, not that we can do that, but let's say we do that for two weeks, what changes at the end of two weeks? We need a plan that not just includes a circuit breaker of some kind, but allows us to go forward in a way that doesn't cause us to be in this situation again. And that's what we missed the first time around. We had summer, we had fall where the numbers were reasonably low when we should have been doing planning exercises to avoid these consequences, where we should have been putting in places resources for improved contact tracing and testing, where we should have been working on how we were going to mitigate these responses. It wasn't rocket science that come winter when everyone's locked indoors that transmission was going to rise. We knew that. And so... We need to start, as a community, making decisions that don't just protect us from COVID, but protect us from mental health and poverty and all those other socioeconomic determinants of health that are linked. So when you ask me, should we have stricter measures, the answer has to be, it depends. What goes along with that? All right. Is that where you stand when it comes to a curfew? We hear that that is off the table. That will not be happening here in Ontario. Quebec, of course, just instituted one on the weekend, it will last uh, four weeks. But where do you stand on a, a curfew? Would it do any good or the ramifications of a curfew, such as mental health? Uh, is it just too much? Look, that's such a complicated question. The idea of a curfew, you know, on some level it makes sense the way the idea of further lockdown does. But you need to have something beyond a single sledgehammer. We need to have a plan moving forward as far as how things work. How would you enforce the curfew? What mitigation would be there for people who work at night and have to go out at night? How would you make sure that shift workers can still get food at the grocery if they're only hours or after hours, those kinds of things? And so, you know, I don't think we have a plan right now where we could roll out a curfew in any way that makes sense and causes less harm than it saves us from. Just finally, uh, Dr. Hill, not only do we have a 6,000 number we're looking at, 6,000 daily cases by the end of the month, but this modeling to be unveiled by the government tomorrow also suggests ICUs in the province will be at capacity by early February. If that happens, uh, what is the plan uh, to make sure that uh, people are taken care of? That's the part that's most terrifying for me as a physician. You know, 6,000 num- a day is scary and Uh, At one point, there was a prediction of possibly up to 10,000 a day. And I've always said those numbers are scary, but what matters to me the most is the people getting sick, not the people who test positive. And, you know, one's a reflection of the other. But when you start talking about the ICU being overwhelmed, you've already gotten past the place where you're canceling all non-emergent activity. And so think about the pandemic deficit of care that we already have. Think about all of those people waiting for surgeries on their cancer, on their... It doesn't matter what. 
they're going to be waiting even longer. Think about all those people who are waiting for in-person care for anything from a variety of things, and they're going to be waiting even longer. And the more we push off that preventative care or even the non-emergent care, the more serious it becomes, the more expensive it becomes, and the harder it becomes to recuperate from. Furthermore, are we going to get to a place like Milan did? Are we going to be in the same position as New York? Are we going to have to decide as physicians who does and doesn't get a ventilator, and how do you make those decisions? That's what terrifies frontline healthcare workers. That's what has all of my colleagues lining up to get vaccinated. You know, we're in a place where we don't want to be responsible for making choices that prioritize one human being over another. That's not what we ever signed up to do. We signed up to take care of everyone. Just finally, is there provisions in place that if our ICUs are at capacity that we could be moving some critical uh, patients to neighboring provinces, perhaps, say, uh, Manitoba, where there might be space? You know what? I think that's a great question. Um, it might be something the Ontario Health uh, Ontario Hospital Association can answer better, or perhaps someone at the ministry. I don't have a line of sight onto that. All right. Dr. Hill, really appreciate the time, as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. You as well. Dr. Samantha Hill is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. All right, we are planning also to bring you the uh, latest on the U.S. political scene, because obviously uh, news there continues to develop, not only really by the day and not only really by the hour, but it seems like uh, by the minute. Hmm. I was watching uh, Nancy uh, Pelosi, Speaker of the House. Uh, She was interviewed on uh, 60 Minutes last night. Pretty harrowing uh, when we get, uh, you know, that firsthand account in more details about uh, what happened as they uh, stormed the uh, state capitol uh, there last uh, week, which, of course, uh, was unfolding, uh, happening while we were on the air on uh, Wednesday, I guess it was. But we're getting more and more uh, details, and they're really harrowing, really uh, frightening, uh, not the least of which is that uh, I guess uh, some of the uh, you know uh, people that went in there actually had zip ties zip ties and uh, looks like they were looking for certain members of the house including uh, speaker uh, pelosi and today of course the democrats are urging the vice president mike pence to help oust trump and enact the uh, 25th amendment and joining us now with uh, more on all of this giving us the latest on the uh, ever-developing u.s political scene is diana evans she is a uh, professor at trinity uh, college in hartford connecticut and she joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Diana, good afternoon, and thank you so much for the time. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. All right. Uh, give us the latest. Explain to us what's uh, going on here. Do we know if uh, Vice uh, President uh, Pence, who we understand is uh, no longer on friendly terms with his boss, with the president, uh, Donald Trump, does it appear as if he's ready to enact this 25th Amendment and oust uh, President Trump? I think that's exactly right. Every indication has been that he will not invoke the 25th Amendment. Um, I think to present um, an impression of fairness, Pelosi has sort of given him an ultimatum, and tomorrow they'll introduce um, a resolution um, in the House of Representatives asking him to invoke the 25th Amendment, but pretty clear he's not going to do that. All right. And if he does not do that, uh, we understand that they're set to go ahead with uh, impeachment, uh, the impeachment process? That's right. Um, They've developed um, at least one article of impeachment. Um, There may be a couple of other articles added. Um, That will be considered by the House Rules Committee on Wednesday, but that's a formality just designed to uh, specify exactly how it will be processed on the floor of the House. So, 
Um, the articles of impeachment could be voted on late Wednesday or early Thursday. All right. And do we have any idea exactly uh, what the case is for impeachment, uh, which, of course, is I think we all know by now would be the second time uh, that President Trump has been impeached and would be a first for a president? Yeah, the resolution as it currently is worded, or at least the latest version I've seen, um, the one article is accuses him, him of inciting insurrection. And that has uh, 218 co-sponsors, um, which is a majority of the House. So it will pass. All right. And is this necessary? Because there's been a lot of to and fro back and forth uh, over the weekend, as uh, Democrats have said that, uh, again, they're going to ask Pence to step up with the 25th Amendment. If not, then impeach. Is this really necessary with nine days and counting left in the Trump presidency, do you think? Well, I think there are a few considerations at play here. One is the idea that someone should not be a president should not be uh, able to do something like this without any consequences. And the reason, one sort of more forward-looking reason for that is that is the message that it sends to future presidents. You can kind of run out the clock and then commit outrageous acts toward the end of your tenure. So, um, so that's one uh, argument at play. The other is that the, uh, if there were a conviction by the Senate, and the Senate wouldn't even start a trial until after Biden became president, um, then he then Trump would be prohibited from ever holding federal office again. Um, however, you know, it's very unlikely that the Senate, um, even with a Democratic majority, would vote to convict because you need a two-thirds, of course, as I'm sure everybody knows from having lived through this um, before, uh, it, you need a two-thirds vote of the Senate. Sure, and that would preclude him, uh, by the way, from uh, running in 2024, correct? Correct. Correct. And that's, that is a major consideration here, um, because obviously he can serve another term, at, at, you know, unless he's convicted. So, um, so, that's, so, you know, there's some other things being considered as well. Censure is a possibility. Um, it carries no consequences, but it is uh, a serious rebuke to any politician, a serious black mark. Um, it, a number of Republicans have said they wouldn't vote for impeachment, but they would vote for censure. Um, it probably could pass both houses of Congress because there are at least three Republican senators who would vote to convict on impeachment. So if they vote for impeachment, they'd surely vote for censure. Um, so that probably could pass both houses. I think right now the main focus is on um, impeachment in reality. Um, but uh, there, at least one person has talked about introducing uh, censure resolution as well. So, All right. Uh, just finally, Diana, let me ask you, in nine days and counting again until the Trump presidency is officially over, uh, what, if anything, are you expecting uh, from the president, or uh, is this just too hard to call or, or to forecast? All the talk uh, leading up to last week, of course, was the uh, pardons that were coming through. Are you expecting more of those, maybe even a self-pardon? There's been a lot of talk about that. I would certainly not be at all surprised if he didn't you know, pardon all members of his, of his family, and he may very well um, try to pardon himself. I don't know what would restrain him. Um, since he hasn't been restrained from much else, 
you know, one of the arguments, one of the fantasies about his resignation early on was that he would resign and um, Pence would pardon him, and there and there wouldn't be any way to challenge that. But clearly, um, that's not in Trump's DNA. So, um, yeah, he he might very well try it. Whether it could stand up, I don't know. You know, it's sort of unprecedented. Yes, well, it seems like the last four years there south of the border has been, uh, for the most part, unprecedented. Diana, really appreciate the uh, time. Thank you so much for the insight in the update. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Stay safe and be well. Diana Evans is a professor at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut. I know all the focus, and rightfully so maybe, has been on U.S. politics over the last uh, week in particular. But here on this side of the border, in a brand new interview, Prime Minister Trudeau saying that an election could well happen. That's the quote. Those are his words. Could well happen in 2021. For more on this, we're joined by John Capabianco. He is with Fleischman Hillard High Road and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. John, good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Appreciate the uh, time. Uh, first off, uh, what possibly, I mean, we know the Liberals are in a minority situation right now. What possibly could or is likely to trigger an election this year, do you think? Well, you know, most governments that are in a minority situation don't want to be in a minority situation. They don't like to be dependent upon another party uh, to uh, to keep them alive, as we saw here in the case in Canada, uh, since, the, since the prime minister was elected in a minority government, that the NDP have propped him up and, and had to rely on the NDP to prop them up a few times for, uh, for non-confidence votes. Um, most, most minority governments typically last about 18 months to 24 months, no longer than that. Uh, and I think we're getting in that window of opportunity now. And, and normally what we see, Jeff, is, is governments, um, when they make ma- major spending announcements, uh, like we saw with the economic statement that caused it to be a, a non-confidence vote that the NDP saved them on, uh, the budget is the next major uh, piece of legislation that's going to be coming down the pike and, and sort of in, in February, March April, uh, area. And that's usually a time when when the government will will put into place, you know, major spending uh, announcements and, and various things that they think may very well trigger um, a no confidence vote. That's if the prime minister wants to have an election, because of course there's two ways to do it. Either either the prime minister can can go to the governor general on his own and, and just ask for the writ to be dropped, or uh, in a case of a non confidence vote, all the opposition parties gather together. Uh, to vote uh, a non-confidence, at which point the, the, the government would would dissolve and it would force an election. Yeah, how likely is it that Jagmeet Singh and the NDP would force an election? Uh, they're kind of in a pretty good place right now. Well, see, this is the problem. I think that the, 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 the NDP have traditionally, uh, we saw it provincially over over course of, and this is not just in Ontario, but in other provinces as well, but traditionally the NDP, whenever there's a liberal minority government, are, is the party that usually props them up. Um, only because, you know, the, the, the Liberals will tend, tend to sort of play a bit more to the left of the political uh, spectrum in order to keep some of the NDP uh, MPPs or MPs happy. Um, and, and the fact that, that Jagmeet's done it before and continues to do it, I think it actually it, it risks a, a, a bit of a disadvantage for him, quite frankly, because he'll be seen as the one that just kowtowing to the Liberals. And at some point, NDP voters will say to themselves, well, why would I vote for Jagmeet? I might as well just vote for the prime minister. And they end up losing votes 
uh, in elections that happen after minority governments when the NDP keep propping them up. But I do think at some point the NDP and, and Jagmeet are going to have to sort of stand on their own and just say, look, now's the time that we have to go to an election. We have to sort of, you know, you know there might be some issues in the budget that they might not like and, and may not be able to, to compromise with the, with the Liberals on uh, and, and defeat them. But I, I, at some point, the NDP just can't keep propping them up. All right. Is this something, do you think, John, that would benefit the uh, Liberals, though? We saw a couple of elections last year in 2020 during the pandemic that were very kind to the incumbents. Could the same thing hold true on the federal level? It could. Uh, and there's, that's the risk. If, if, if Canadians see that the, the political party in power, in this case the Liberals, um, are calling election for, for purely self-interest, uh, the fact that they you know, are tired of, of minority government situation and they want to you know, get, a, get a majority so they can control their own agenda. Uh, if, if Canadians see that, that there's a bit of a self-interest, they can actually backfire. We've seen that happen in Ontario way back when, when, uh, when David Peterson was in a minority situation, again, propped up by the NDP. Uh, and he called an election purely for no reason other than he wanted a majority government. If there's a certain sense that, that there's a new direction or that the government wants to do something, that the opposition aren't, aren't particularly in favor of something, and it just there seems to be an impasse, uh, and the government sort of convinces Canadians that the only way to get things through is to have an election and, and with a new mandate, be it either them or, or another party, then I think I think there's some justification for it. But it really is risky if, you know, especially we're in a pandemic. So the Liberals have to make sure that they have all their ducks in a row. In other words, they have to make sure that the vaccines are being disseminated and dispensed properly, that the pandemic numbers are coming down. If Canadians feel, you know, vulnerable that they're going to an election when, when the pandemic is still at its height and the anxiety levels are still high, it could actually backfire on them. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, we can look at uh, past minority situations, but I think all of that uh, really does not apply here because the pandemic trumps everything. It really is truly an election game changer. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And again, you know, everybody wanted to get 2020 out of the way, which which uh, which we did. But we're starting 2021 still with some anxiety levels with numbers going up. Vaccines are are coming in and, and, and being sort of dispensed, but not fast enough. So, you know, if that continues on in March, April, I, I can't see an election uh, given, given the circumstances. All right, John, appreciate the time and the analysis. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. John Capabianco is with Fleischman Hillard High Road, High Road, sorry, and that is his uh, analysis on whether or not we'll see an election. I mean, the prime minister saying uh, over the weekend, again, in an interview that, quote, it could well happen in 2021. Time will tell.